Welcome back to the People Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Patton. Today I have with me Rodney Evans, who is partner at The Ready. Welcome, Rodney. How are you? Great, Lindsay. How are you doing? I'm well. So I am excited to talk to you today because we see eye to eye on a lot of stuff. So let's just jump into it. Why does The Ready exist? Sure. Yeah. The Ready exists to change the world. We want to make the world a more adaptive and more human place to live and to work. Yeah. And so tell me how that came to fruition, because I know that you had some experiences in your career that led you to this point. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I sometimes I think of my my partner, Aaron Dignan, founded The Ready. Um, in some ways, he and I had very like parallel work and life experiences where we both had other consultancies before this and sort of stumbled our way in some ways into understanding that if you're not designing organizations differently, the rest of the things that you're trying to do, whether it's create a new product or cultivate better leaders or um, invent a new technology or do a digital trend, whatever you're trying to do, if you don't have the right operating system inside of your company, the content that you're trying to do is going to fall flat. And so we both sort of found our way to this systems design world um, separately and then met each other and then um, started working together um, at the ready. We have since um, then launched another business called Murmur that is a technology business as well as a podcast and lots of other things over the last six years or so. Congratulations on that success. So one thing I like um, about your mindset is how the ready changes the how instead of the why. Could you go on and elaborate about what that means to you? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we when we think about organizations, a lot of the mindset that's a more traditional mindset is a very bureaucratic mindset. It's a mindset that was invented on the factory floor where we separate the thinking from the doing, where a lot of the workers are um, you know, working in a permission-based way where the managers and the leaders are the ones who sit off to the side and evaluate the real work being done. But but we don't work on a factory floor anymore. And so those kind of complicated bureaucratic solutions don't serve us very well. And so, so in a, in a knowledge economy, in the kind of jobs that most of us have that require judgment, that we require creativity, what we want is a lot of autonomy. We want to see the people who are doing the work have enough authority to change how they do the work. Because, because a lot of times, you know, when we want to see a better widget or we want to see more efficiency or we want to make we can't do that just by like going faster or pushing harder or working more. We have to reconsider how we are actually doing our work. And, and what we find that is truly like, it does feel sometimes like a little bit of like magic is, is, is how much the how can have outsized impact on the what. And what I mean by that is, a lot of times, you know, we work with a lot of big companies. A lot of times I'll go into an organization and there will be something, say, that's like cross-functional that really isn't working well. And and usually what that looks like is, you know, we have the sales team and the operations team and the technology team and the finance team and the procurement team and the legal team. And they all report up in the hierarchy to different people and they all have different targets they need to meet and they all have different ways of working. And there's a lot of murkiness around who actually gets to decide what. And when we just get 
a you know sort of a rep the right representative from each of those groups into an operating rhythm of meetings, into different meeting types, into making decisions in different ways. All of a sudden, a lot of the static and a lot of the sludge gets resolved really, really quickly. And people are like, did you just do that with like meetings and decision making? And it's like, (laughs) yes. But historically, what we were focused on was what the salesperson was doing, what their leads looked like, what the legal person was redlining. Like we're so, we get so jammed up on the content that we don't think about the containers and the fact that that's really where things fall apart, but that's also where we can put them back together. Yeah. And another thing I really admire about you is your view toward leadership because we say over and over, you know, organizational change, it comes from the, the top down, you know, management, it, you know, that toxic comes from the top down, but what does it mean to emulate it? And so you are a leader that is actually emulating it. And the example that I love that you gave me is how you and Aaron, your business partner, you're in therapy together. You're in business therapy. Yeah, totally. So yeah, Aaron and I have a coach. Um, he's amazing. And you know, the reason that we are doing that work together is because for us, that that is what working on the how looks like. It looks like having someone help because we know that know what we know and we only have our own awareness. And that when when you're two people who are trying to steward two businesses effectively, sometimes you need external help. And maybe that's a coach or maybe that's an org designer or maybe that's a strategist or maybe that's whomever. But the point is, if we're not sort of like walking our own walk in terms of identifying when there's a tension and trying a different practice to resolve it, then like, how can we be out in the world doing this work? Mm-hmm. And something that you mentioned that I, I really respect is that, you know, you and Aaron get along great. You know, you haven't necessarily reached the point where you like need, it's a necessity. It's you're doing this as an investment because you want to make sure you don't cross those problems. Absolutely. I mean, Aaron is one of my best friends in the world. We have a partnership that I think would be enviable to like anyone who saw inside of it. And if you're going to work in a self-managing system, and what I mean by that is um, a consent-based system where there's not a traditional hierarchy, there's not traditional bosses, there's not sort of top-down mandate, there's a very high likelihood that you are going to need to do your own personal work, whether that takes the form of therapy or coaching or mindfulness, or whatever it is, because when you work in a traditional system, when you work in a traditional toxic, often toxic, not always, but often toxic hierarchy, and things go wrong, you have someone to blame. You're like, well, yeah. my, bo- my boss <laughs> told me to do this, and it didn't work out, and so like, she's a moron, and that sucked. And and that's how that goes. You know, you can project your own failures on the system or on your teammates, or on boss, or whomever, when you work in a self-managing system like ours, um, there's, there's there's no one to go project your stuff onto. And so, you know, I've just found over the years, you know, because I have avenues to change any aspect of my working life that I don't like, or that causes me tension, or that holds me back from doing my best work, because I have that agency, then I have to deal with the stuff that comes up when I am unhappy. 
because I don't mm-hmm. have someone to just go like, well, this is out of my control. He sucks through <laughs> yeah. this. I like, I, I have the ability to change it. And so then the question becomes, what am I feeling? What do I need? What is a request I could make? What is a proposal I could write, et cetera, et cetera. And some of us, I would say most of us, some help and need some some of our own self-work to be able to do that really effectively. And I think, you know, for Aaron and I, certainly, you know, both of us have done work separately. And I think it feels to me like having a coach, it's like having a coach for us for like, you know, duo tennis. Like, it's like, you know, if you're going to be on the court together, trying to do something really, really hard, like, you know, you wouldn't expect a a doubles tennis team to not have a coach that's looking at how they show up, how they play, how they strategize and not giving them feedback on what they could do differently. And so I just feel like if you want to be at the top of your game, figure out what the support structure is that you need so that you can do that. Yeah. So I want to transition into this hierarchical culture that we live in, especially within the Western world. So can you talk a little bit about how you're fighting back and kind of trying to change (laughs) that? Yeah, yeah, I can. I mean, I came from such traditional companies. You know, my first jobs from, you know, when I was an intern, I worked for the Gartner Group and I worked for consulting. And then I worked for Deutsche Bank. And, you know, I would say in all of those contexts, like I was very well worded. Mm. No, like I really... I I I am someone, you know, I hate to admit it, but I am someone who appreciates external validation. I liked pleasing my bosses. I liked getting the exceeds expectation ratings. Mm-hmm. I liked being at the top of the bonus curve. Like I liked all of those trappings and I was winning in many ways at that game. And yet I didn't really feel like I was doing work that was very meaningful in a lot of ways. And mostly that was because I wasn't particularly encouraged to. A lot of the ideas that I had, once they sort of went through the machine of the bureaucracy of like talking to 15 stakeholders and doing the 14th PowerPoint revision and getting the 20th mm-hmm. approval and whatever, by the time it sort of went through that machine, it, it you know had been whittled down or watered down to nothing or stalled completely or the budget dried up or whatever. And so... So, so once I sort of, I, it feels like seeing through the matrix, like once I sort of saw that it was the system, not my individual boss or not me or not my ideas or not my team or whatever, I started to get really interested in alternative ways of organizing and working. So at the ready, and we are not the only people out there doing this, at the ready, we believe strongly in self-management. And a lot of folks hear that and they go like, oh, yeah, just fire all the bosses and have chaos and it'll just be like these hippies <laughs> and whatever. And that is 100% not what self-management is. If anything, I would tell you self-management is more disciplined and 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 actually requires more rigor and more thought about the how of work because we don't just have all of these implicit and explicit power structures telling us about the how of work. So so just to give a super easy example, if I was still working at a traditional company and I had an idea for a different kind of work schedule. Let's say let's say I still worked on my old team and I thought that we should have no meeting Fridays and on Fridays <clears throat> we should all have time to 
think and read and do real work and write and make stuff. If I still worked at an, at one of my old companies, I would have like written something probably in a PowerPoint deck and brought that to my boss. <coughs> and maybe in that meeting they would have given me some feedback, but more likely it it would have kicked off that machine. And probably by the end of that machine, that idea would be dead. Maybe we would have one hour on Fridays, but more likely we would have nothing. And and so that's how hierarchies work. And and in self-management, instead of that, what I want to do is I'm going to be able to bring a proposal and I'm going to ask for their consent to to try something with the bar of what is safe to try. So self-management is not about um just leaderlessness. In fact, a lot of the proposals that one sees in self-management over time are about power and are about concentrating authority over here because we've realized we actually need someone with more in finance to keep our finance tolerances safe. Or we need more um, authority over here because we are seriously committed to Jedi work and we need someone to steward that for us and protect us and tell us when went off the rails. And so so self-management isn't about getting rid of power structures. It's about making them explicit and asking for consent. And so what that means also is like, I can't just start to um, impose my view. I can't tell anybody what they have to do at my company. Um, and if over time they don't want me in a certain role, I will likely be elected out of it at some point if I am not performing in a way that serves the group. So these are all like little bits and pieces. But the idea here is we see a future that is neither chaotic, like like how a lot of Web3 land lives, nor bureaucratic, like how a lot of the Fortune 500 lives, but but is this third thing, which is a more self-managing, more empowered way of working. So one example that I love uh, that you do at The Ready is you create an equitable environment by not having like a 90-day wait period. Uh, At day one, new hires are already part of that culture. So can you describe what it's like for a new hire at The Ready? Yeah. I mean, rather than doing the traditional sort of probationary thing, we started something a long time ago that's called the prologue period. And the intention of the prologue period, it's actually funny because it sometimes gets misunderstood by new hires and they think it is like a trial period. But, But actually what we found and the reason that we first governed it internally was because a lot of people come in or not so much anymore, but in the early days of the ready, We had people enter the system who didn't fully understand what this work is like and what it's like to work in a self-managing system and just had different passions. Like they were like, what I really want to do is coaching and what I, or what I really want to do is whatever strategy or what I really want to do is whatever this thing is. And, and what we found was liked company, but they didn't really like the work that we did. And so we created this period of time that is a much more feedback-rich environment that is really intended for people to be able to learn and suss out whether this is the place for them and, and for us. So, so we see it as this period of determining mutual fit through a lot of feedback in both directions, both prologue members saying to their team members like, hey, I'm not learning 
what I need to, or you're not getting me reps, or how can I be more involved in this or whatever. And members being able to say to prologue members like, hey, you know, you're not showing up in this way, or we really need you to contribute in this way or whatever. And so and and so we have these pauses throughout the prologue periods where basically we're deciding on both sides whether we want to recommit to each other, whether we want to stay stay together. And so we sort of, you know, it's sort of like dating. It's like there's this period of time where we're dating. We don't start on day one with a marriage, but we also don't start on day one assuming that there's a power dynamic where we decide whether you're good enough to be here. And um and you know, we're we're still fiddling with it. It's still not perfect, but we just find that it's a better way of starting off than um than the way a lot of traditional orgs do. And I love that. I feel like the employer-employee relationship should be mutual when too much power has and weight has been put into the employer. Um, in class last week, a student brought up how he asked the uh, potential employers questions like, what about me do you think could succeed? And so we got into a whole discussion on how it's important that the interview is you interviewing the employer just as much as the employer is interviewing you. And I feel like a lot of, you can feel empowered when you look at it that way. 100%. And um, I've done some work over the years with Duke, which is right down the road from me here in Durham, North Carolina. And and a lot of uh, the folks in graduate programs there have asked me like, you know, what should I, what's, what's a good question to ask in an interview to know if a company is like, what you're describing as the future of work or whether it's like an old school company. And, and, and the thing that I always say is like, ask them about the how and get specific. So mm-hmm. ask them like you, you know, new, new future boss. Um, like how do you make decisions or like how much authority do you personally have to make a decision or tell me what your, Tell me what a, a a typical team meeting looks like. What do you talk about? How many people participate? Who facilitates? Like get like ask about tooling. Be like, you know, how, how do how do you share information? Like getting at the how will tell you everything that you need to know about a company's culture. And usually I find that the miss is in an interview context in particular, the candidate either wants to talk about the interviewer as a person or wants to talk about themselves as a person. And I'm like, none of that will tell you really what you want to know, which is how does this place work? Yeah, absolutely. So going into, I want to get into, you know, like that toxic experience that put you on your mission to change the world, because I feel like there, it's hard to go through work, (laughs) a career and not come across a toxic situation. And I feel that a lot of workers, it radicalizes them or makes them bitter. <laughs> I am I'm getting out of the bitter phase myself and into the radicalization phase. Um, so how did that motivate you, that experience motivate you to make the world better for workers? I mean, it's a really interesting question. And I would I would love to hear a little bit about your story too. Okay. Like I, I don't know that it was one one moment, but I think it was probably the biggest and and then there were many turning points after that because I have never had a plan and I still don't have a plan. <laughs> and I just, you know, life is life is just like a series of 
Yeah. Um, but I remember at my last job at Deutsche Bank, um, my boss was going to be leaving. She was going to be um, repatriating to her home country after many, many years as an expat. And there was there was some discussion underway about you know what would happen to the team and what would a future role for me look like and succession planning and things like this. And and what I realized then was that more success in that environment was going to be like a pie eating contest where the prize was more pie. Like all I was going to get if I kept climbing the ladder there was more, more money, definitely more money, but also more overwork, more burnout. And, and people misunderstand burnout. You know, people think burnout is just from like sprinting all the time and sprinting forever. And that's part of it. But the bigger part of burnout is lack of control. Mm-hmm. where you don't have a lot of freedom to do things the way that you would like for them to be done or to make improvements that would make your work and your life better that is that is a huge contributor to burnout and and as a person who works a lot and works quite hard but doesn't experience burnout in my current organization it's because no one is coercing me or forcing me to do things basically if I'm overworking, it's because I have chosen to overwork, not because somebody is making me do it. And so I, I think that was a real, that was a big realization to me was like, oh, I'm climbing this ladder and this ladder goes to a really crappy place. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like, look, I, you know, I feel like I always have to give the caveat, like, I am an incredibly privileged person to be able to make the choices and particularly make the leaps that I made. And the first 10 years of my career, you know, I I had student loans, I paid my own rent. I did not have like I didn't have a net. I didn't have savings. I didn't have family money that was going to prop me up. Now, to be clear, I was still always going to like have a home and be fed and have that much support, but I wasn't I wasn't a trust fund kid that was like, YOLO, I can do what I want. Yeah. <laughs> and and so I'm only saying that out loud because I think that for me, and maybe this will resonate with some of your listeners, for me, it took getting to a certain level of stability and security to feel like I had the freedom to make a different choice. And also to see that all of those things I had been working really hard for didn't make me particularly happy. And and in fact, I was like particularly unhappy and then also developed coping mechanisms um, to deal with that unhappiness that were not particularly healthy from like, you know, not working out to probably like partying more than I should to not having good sleep habits to like, you know, on Friday night, just feeling like I wanted to like stare at a wall and drink a bourbon because my yeah. brain was so yeah. shot. And so I just, you know, to me, it was like... um it was just tr- it was just trading off it was just like okay well if i don't want this and i can't nothing i'm not a person who is who you know can just like sit on a beach and um what what is the other option and so that was when i really started to explore um was out there who was trying to revolutionize the world of work and and that that was a big what about you? Did you have like a moment or many moments? Oh, I'd love to hear your oh, story. Wow. Uh, there were many moments and then one big moment. Uh, so I I was born and raised in Michigan and I had an opportunity to move to Philadelphia. Uh, a Shark Tank company had hired me and it was a vice president role. And like you, you know, I was very in terms of like 
output ambitious. Um, so I'm like this, you know, this is my feel stuck in my career. I'm going to do this. I've always wanted to live on the East coast, which true. I'm so glad that I did that because obsessed with Philly and it was just, uh, they were a little bit younger than me. Um, one of the co-founders had been fired from every single job and like used that as, um, like a, a point of pride in a way. So there is a red flag. Um, And so why I appreciate what you and Aaron do is because they waited until it was too late to get the coaching that they needed. And it didn't work because it was too, they were too deep. Um, So it was just a lot of inappropriate behavior, uh, verbal abuse. They made us watch their dogs um, and be responsible for them even after like closing time, um, a couple of people that I managed had to watch their dog like an hour, hour and a half after closing time because the co-founders weren't coming back. Um, and it was just a very, they're very, um, they're very big and very fragile egos. So it was just a lot of that, that, you know, entitlement type behavior, um, and it led to a contentious business divorce. We were like, you know, encouraged to choose sides. And one of the co-founders was locked out of the company. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, she's the most toxic one. So things will get better. No, did not get better. Uh, the other co-founder had now had no one else to place her stress on. So I was the target. Um, at that point I was burned out for, from, you know, just the constant, you know, verbal attacks, the dysfunction. Um, and so my migraine attacks, which I've had my entire adult life, they became chronic. Um, and you know, my migraine attacks when they're down, when I'm down, I'm down, like I'm vomiting. I cannot sit up straight. Like there's no way that I can do work. Um, and it really frustrated the co-founder that I was taking off that much work. I was, disabled essentially. I mean, it is covered, it is recognized. Um, so she was upset when I asked to work from home because I had a sinus infection and told me that I had all my sick days were taken away. I have to use PTO. And if I want to work from home, I have to use PTO. Um, I had 18 PTO days and had to split them up between my family, see my family in Michigan, my migraine attacks, any other sickness. And uh, maybe if I wanted a vacation, I don't, that probably wouldn't have happened. <laughs> and so that was really, that. yeah, that was really like the the point where I was like, these aren't like, I mean, I knew they weren't good people, but that was like the, well, they're really not good people <laughs> moment. And I even like went to HR and HR told me that, Since there were fewer than 15 employees, they didn't have to abide by the Americans with Disabilities Act. They did not have to accommodate me. And that was the moment that sent me just seeing red. And I was like, I'm done. Oh, I'm (laughs) sorry. That's a short version. There are many other scary details (laughs) in between in terms of behavior. But yeah, that's what happened. I mean, I feel like, Lindsay, inside of your story, though, is like everything that we see that's wrong with work. It's like there's a lack of clarity around what leadership roles are. There's a lack of consent from the people who are being led around what their remit is and how they best serve the organization. And then most importantly, in terms of you and your own 
illness and how you were treated, you know, there's two things that come to mind for me that we talk about a lot. One is fundamentally believe theory Y people, not theory X people, which means that um, we fundamentally believe that human beings want to contribute, like that we want to make a difference, that we want to show up, that we want to do good work. And if we're not doing that, there is likely a reason, and it's probably environmental, Mm -hmm. it could be psychological, but that like our our default position isn't being lazy and needing to be controlled and told. Like our default position is wanting to show up and cooperate and collaborate. We are we are wired as an animal to be cooperative generally. And and the world takes that away from us, not the other way around. And then and then second is, you know, when I hear things like using PTO and and being managed by time in that way, first of all, it's such a stupid way to manage people because it's like (laughs) great. So you're present in the office with a blinding migraine and like, how much are you getting done? And can you even function? Like it's so dumb. And second, infantilizing. It's like, you know, we're all adults in these situations. You know, you're a person who is, who is old enough and able to like buy a home or have a child or make major life decisions or whatever. And yet you're not someone who is trusted to manage your own time and your own health. And, and a company feels like they know better and can tell you that, like, that just seems like the definition of insanity to me. Yeah, the asking permission. And for people like me who do have disabilities, have health issues, have chronic conditions, Mm -hmm. it is so embarrassing asking permission to take care of your body and having someone else have power over that. It is just, like you said, you know, it's, I'm I'm an adult. <laughs> why why are you telling me I can't tend to my body? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So I I I am sorry that that happened to you and and it sounds Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people there are different reasons why people chase leadership and I think power is a big reason that needs to be evaluated. Um, I, I chase it for freedom because like you, you know, no, there's no one I have to ask permission. I can, you know, work the way I want to work, but I think too many people chase it for power and that needs to be attacked and and dismantled. I mean, I think you're right. And I also, I think those things are very related to each other. You know, I think one of the reasons that people do chase power is because, they have had the experience of being controlled or imposed upon or coerced or abused or whatever. And so they're like, I need to rise to a level where I don't have to endure that. And then they just create the same pattern with the people who are reporting to them. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, if we could all be liberated, like if we could all be free and none of us needed to have power over others in order to have freedom for ourselves, what a, what a world that would be. Yeah. Yeah. So you also mentioned, you know, during your decision to quit your job that you took a year off and that helped change your perspective. Um, obviously, you know, you, you prefaced with, you are privileged in the sense that you were able to do that. Um, but even just taking, you know, a week off or doing some intentional time off, uh, how can that help a person that kind of is in that burned out position? I mean, I truly cannot. 
I see people so frequently just jumping from one bad situation into a new situation, expecting that the situation is going to change and then recreating exactly what they had over here in the new context because they don't do the work of like threshold and some liminal space where they perspective, get in touch with their values. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I was incredibly fortunate that I was in a position to take a year off. Um, That was that was after Deutsche Bank. And I traveled around the world with uh, my now husband. He was not my husband then. And and look, on the one hand, I understand that that is not an opportunity that's accessible to a lot of people. On the other hand, there are a lot of people who say out of hand, that's not possible. There's no way. And and really, like, for a lot of people, I think it it depends on mindset. So so for Ed and I, for example, um, you know, we gave up our apartment in New York City, um, saved money for sure before doing that. We opted not to have a wedding. And basically the money that we would have spent on a New York City wedding lasted for a year of travel. And and again, I'm not saying that that's the right decision for everyone, but I'm saying if you really start to look at what you want and what's important to you, what was important to us was having this shared experience, um, seeing life outside of New York City. You know, he grew up in New York. I grew up in Connecticut. We both went to school in the Northeast. We had both lived our whole adult lives in Manhattan. And we were like, you know, let's see what else is out there. And and having, you know, left Wall Street and an apartment in the East Village and then gone right to Mongolia, um, it like really shifted my perspective. And and shifted my perspective in a way that it never shifted back. So, you know, being um, being in other countries, seeing how people lived, seeing what people lived with and and how and like, you know, frankly, how how happy, you know, the happiness index in places like Mongolia is incredibly high. And at the time, um, there there was not a lot of material there. You know, it's it's this was 10 years ago. Things have changed a lot in Mongolia. But just as an example, you know, you, you go to you go to other countries that are more um, more community focused, more collectively oriented, you know, not not driven by work and capitalism and amassing wealth and stuff as the first driver, and and just and just hanging out in other places for a full year kind of reset my of thinking to be like, how much do we actually need? But mm, it's yeah. not as much as I thought. <laughs> um, you know, it's not as much as Wall Street tells you you need for sure. Um, and so, and so, I think when we came back and we started trying to decide where we were going to live, you know, it's sort of like what I was saying about you know how people people behave rationally based on company that they're in or based on the organization that's around them. We were like, if we come back to New York and we just go parachute back into our old lives, we're going to immediately start mm-hmm. that we were before. And so we really thought about where we were going to live and what was most important to us and what a lower cost of living would do in terms of our freedom or our ability to not work all the time. And and we never went back to New York. We moved to North Carolina and we have a really wonderful life here. And I'm not sure I hadn't taken that trip. If we hadn't sort of severed all ties, I'm not, and, and seen how the, a lot of 
the rest of the world lives and works, I'm not sure that we would have made some of the decisions that we did that have turned out to be really great. That's awesome. And it really, you know, it shows the power of taking a break. And I feel like we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. And if we have a weekend where we don't do anything and we're just lazy, we feel bad about it. But that's okay. We need we need to rest. And we are in a world right now that is full of a lot of chaos, a lot of stress, and taking care of yourself should be number one right now. Absolutely. And and I think to the exact point that you just made, you know, other cultures don't see rest as being lazy. Yeah. They just see it as part of life. And, you know, um, we Aaron and I have a podcast called Brave New Work, and there's an episode coming up that we interview um, Oliver Berkman, who wrote a really wonderful book, basically taking down like the traditional productivity in like industry. And and this is a lot of what he talks about, about the fact that our orientation toward completing tasks and doing stuff and using our time well is kind of just like nonsense. Like it's kind of a made up (laughs) thing and it has really nothing to do with a life well lived. You know, finishing the things on your to-do list has not much to do with having a really fulfilling and satisfying life. And so I think, you know, to your point, I would love to see us reorient to um, spaciousness and rest and and um, and understanding that those things don't have to be only at the end of a marathon. Those things should be a part of how. I think that is a beautiful note to end on, a little bit of, of wisdom to rest. <laughs> Rodney, you have been a delight. It has been amazing talking about just looking at work in a different way, in a more healthy, positive way. And I'm so glad you're doing this in the world and changing the world. Um, But before we sign off, uh, what's the best way people can learn more about you, get in touch? Yeah. So thank you so much for having me. Um, You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Rodney Evans 919. I do tweet, try to be I try to be on Twitter. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can see more about the ready at theready.com. And of course, you can get the Brave New Work podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So many awesome places to find you, Rodney. Thank you. And again, I'm Lindsay, host of People Analytics. If you or anyone you know is like Rodney who wants to change work for the better, please reach out to me, Lindsay at staffgeek.com. Thank you for listening to Staff Geek's People Analytics podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Patton, and I'm always looking to interview leaders who put people first. If you or someone you know lead with a people-first mindset, please email me at lindsay at staffgeek.com. That's L-I-N-D-S-A-Y at staffgeek.com. If you want to take things a step deeper and understand your organization's true culture DNA, I encourage you to take Staff Geek's free culture assessment. Just head to staffgeek.com and click the button that says free culture assessment. Thanks again for listening.